If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 3. And um, if you weren't here last week, let me just catch up a little bit. We have just entered into the second major section of the book of Romans, a section that runs from chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21. Now, the first major section dealt with condemnation, whereas this new section deals with justification. Uh, in the first section, Paul told unsaved men and women they were lost, but in this new section, he tells lost sinners how to be saved. The first section of Romans ended with verse 20 of chapter 3, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Verses 21 to 23 are transitional. They're a bridge between the condemnation of, of a works righteousness approach to God and the justification that is available through the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. Verse 24 sets forth the theme of this new section, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Guys, this is the first time the word grace appears in the book as it relates to salvation. Now, Paul did use the word twice in chapter 1, once in verse 5, the other in verse 7, but only in the his customary way of a greeting, Christian churches, uh, it was his opening salutation, uh, but he didn't use it in the first chapter as an important doctrinal concept, which is now what he's doing. So, guys, verse 24 introduces us to the grace of God as it relates to salvation. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not the result of our works, lest any should boast. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and I quote, There is no more wonderful a word than grace. It means unmerited favor or kindness shown to one who is utterly undeserving. It is not merely a free gift, but a free gift to those who deserve the exact opposite. And it is given to us while we were, quoting Ephesians 2 verse 12, without hope and without God in the world. I came across an interesting little uh, story I thought I'd share with you. It goes like this. During a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation. Well, other religions had different versions of God's appearing in human form. Resurrection. Again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the uh, rumpus about, he asked, and heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the members of the conference had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant and Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional 
on the basis of grace, end quote. One uh, well-known Christian counselor summed up his practice this way, and we're just laying the introduction for tonight's study. But one well-known Christian counselor summed up his practice this way. He said, many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are the failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness, and two, the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people, end quote. Uh, Pastor Chuck Smith, in his book, Why Grace Changes Everything, had this to say. He said, and I quote, Without grace, my relationship with God is never an established reality, and it is impossible to enjoy peace. If my relationship with God were dependent on how I felt or how I was living or on my own, my own righteousness, I would not be able to relate to God most of the time. When my relationship with God is predicated upon His grace toward me, however, the door of blessing is never closed. God's blessings are bestowed on the basis of His grace and on His unmerited favor. I never deserve or earn any of His blessings. The blessings that come into my life are always predicated upon God's unmerited favor to me. God loves me so much, He blesses me in spite of me. The truest praise is that which rises spontaneously from our hearts as we recognize God's marvelous grace towards us. Yeah, grace is a pretty amazing thing. I think they wrote a song about that. Someone did. Yeah, grace is a pretty amazing thing. But what's also pretty amazing is how we who have been the recipients of so much grace from God can turn around and show so little grace to those who are in sin or who have wronged us in some way. Last year, many of us went to see the movie The Jesus Revolution. It was about how God's grace was poured out on a generation of young people back in the 60s and 70s who were hippies, druggies, drug dealers, a group of young people that society had basically written off, and unfortunately, so had many in the church. So that when God began to move, and you know the story, the Jesus movement, when God began to move, and these kids began to be touched by the Holy Spirit, they wanted to find God. So where do you go to find God? You go to church. Unfortunately, when they showed up to many of the churches back in those days, wearing their long hair, tie-dyed t-shirts, bell-bottom jeans, barefoot sandals, they were met at the door by elders and deacons who said, look, when you go home and take a bath and change your clothes, come on back. Many of them never went back. Others got directed to a church that was opening their arms to these young people, Calvary Chapel. Pastor Chuck Smith was one of the few pastors in those days who understood that God's grace was at work and God was moving. And we need to realize that the bulk of Jesus' ministry were the social outcasts too, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, a variety of sinners who heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God began to move in their hearts, and they began to follow him. They were open. Uh, in those days, of course, in Jesus' day, the religious establishment was 
probably even worse than it was in our country in the 60s. The scribes and the Pharisees were absolutely adamant that they didn't want any sinners, quote-unquote, to be around them, and um, so on and so forth. Guys, it's all about grace. Wasn't it about God's love? Yes, made available through His grace. Author and pastor Gordon MacDonald said, and I quote, The world can do almost anything as well as or better than the church. You don't need to be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, or heal the sick. There is only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace, end quote. Guys, in the Bible, often grace is associated with forgiveness. We see it right here in our verse, verse 24 of Romans 3, where Paul said, being justified freely, that's forgiveness, by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Guys, grace and forgiveness go hand in hand. You might say grace is the attitude, forgiveness is the action that results from the attitude. And forgiveness is what people need most in their lives, whether they realize it or not. It's what they're craving. Some understand that, some don't. But everybody is longing for some kind of forgiveness. There's a story that I came across years ago. I'll share it with you. The story is told in Spain of a father and his teenage son who had a relationship that had become strained. So the son ran away from home. His father, however, began a journey in search of his rebellious son. Finally in Madrid, in a last desperate effort to find him, the father put an ad in the newspaper. The ad read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, signed your father. The next day at noon, in front of the newspaper office, 800 young men named Paco showed up. They were all seeking forgiveness and love from their fathers. It reminds us, of course, of the story of the prodigal son. How this young guy decided he was being uh, hindered in his father's house. You know, wanted to spread his wings and really experience life. So he asked his dad for his inheritance, which in that culture, Jewish culture was tantamount to saying that I wish you were dead because I want my inheritance money now the father could have disowned him on the spot threw him out of the house but he was a gracious man so he gave him his inheritance and I'm convinced was praying for him every day but the young guy went to a far country and wasted his money on prodigal wasteful living you know you could fill in the blanks you know wine women song and when you have money and you're willing to spend it on your friends, you got a lot of friends. But eventually the money ran out, and his friends ran out. And uh, the only job he could find, because it was a famine in that land, the only job he could find was slopping pigs, which for a Jew that's about as low as it gets. Standing knee-deep in pig slop, feeding the most defiled of animals. And it says he, when he came to his senses, he said, you know, my father's servants have plenty to eat. What am I doing here? I need to get back to the father, my father's house. And he rehearsed this little speech. You remember the story? And so as he started walking, when he starts getting close to his father's house, the father sees him afar off and runs to him, throws his arms around him, 
and the son launches into this speech, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. Uh, just let me be one of the hired servants and so on. And the father stopped him, told his servants, put a robe on him, put a ring on his finger, power of attorney, sandals on his feet. Slaves didn't wear sandals. And let's rejoice because this son of mine who was lost is now found. You read that story, and of course, the father ran to his son. That was complete breach of protocol. The father was Lord in those families. He was the patriarch. If anybody ran to anybody, the children ran to the father. And especially a father would never run to a wayward son who basically told him, Dad, I wish you were dead. But he ran to him, and he threw his arms around him. Yes, to show that he was a gracious man. But in that culture, you may not realize that if a son dishonored his parents, they were to be stoned. And the community all took part in that. And I believe part of what was going on was the father ran to his son, threw his arms around him to say, I love you and welcome home. You are my son. You'll never be a hired servant. But also to protect him, to say to the community, if you're going to stone him, my son, you're going to have to kill me first. Forgiveness. Pastor and theologian Horace Bushnell said, and I quote, Forgiveness is man's deepest need and God's highest achievement. Guys, the testimony of Scripture, a testimony that's repeated over and over again, is that God is by nature a forgiving God. Uh, the theme of forgiveness runs through the Scriptures from Genesis through Revelation. Even as Moses descended from Mount Sinai, with the tablets of the law, God emphasized his willingness to forgive. Let me read it to you. Uh, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And the Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, guys, since grace can either mean getting what you don't deserve, or giving to someone what they don't deserve, we can see why God commands us to forgive those who have wronged us, even if they don't deserve it, even if they never acknowledge they hurt us, or even if they never ask for forgiveness. We are still commanded to forgive them in our hearts, even as Jesus forgave those that put him on the cross as he looked down and saw the soldiers down below him. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus was our example. When he died on the cross, he looked down from that cross upon all of humanity and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They have no idea the judgment that's going to be awaiting them. And I've died that they might be forgiven, but they have to receive that forgiveness. As somebody has said, forgiveness is not earned. It's bestowed, at least in the kingdom of God. Forgiveness is not something we earn from God. It's something he freely bestows upon us and then says to us now, bestow that same forgiveness on to others that have hurt you and wronged you. Guys, the most common word for forgiveness in the New Testament is a word that means to release, to throw away, to free yourself. Look, unforgiveness can tie you up in knots and lead to resentment. You know what the word resentment literally means, the root of it? 
to feel again. In other words, resentment clings to the past, reliving the hurt over and over again, like constantly picking at a newly formed scab so that the wound never really heals. You remember when Peter asked Jesus how often he should forgive a brother who sinned against him. The Lord replied, 70 times 7, which actually means, Peter, as often as they wrong you, extend forgiveness. An unlimited number of times. And then to illustrate the principle, as one author said, Jesus told the parable of the unforgiving slave. After being forgiven a huge, unpayable sum by the king, the man refused to forgive a fellow slave for a pittance and was handed over to the torturers by the irate king. So shall my heavenly father also do to you, Jesus said, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Guys, because God in Christ has forgiven each of us a great debt that we owed him, no Christian has the right to be unforgiving, especially to a fellow Christian. Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 2, Paul said, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. If you can't forgive them for them, for their sake, do it for Jesus' sake. That's just the easiest way to think of it. If someone has wronged you and hurt you deeply, and it's hard for you to really extend them forgiveness, if you won't do it for them, do it for Jesus. Look, there are people that I would have a hard time forgiving, but I'll do anything for Jesus. And it makes it a lot easier if I do it as unto him. So, once again, the passage before us, and I'm looking at verses 21 to 31, deals with the righteousness of God, or to put it literally, the Greek is actually the righteousness that comes from God, comes from God. When we talk about righteousness as it relates to man, it simply means the state of being right with God. Righteousness simply means the state of being right with God. Now, Paul is going to be dealing with how a person can be right with God in this section. And when I say that, we of course, we're thinking of salvation and inheriting heaven, which is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is really all about. That's what Paul said to begin uh, his letter to the Romans in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He laid out the theme, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel, of course, is that way by which men and women fallen lost men and women might get right with God, which implies salvation, eternal life, and a place in heaven someday. Now, guys, I'm not overstating it when I say that this is one of the most important and foundational passages in the Bible, the very heart of New Testament doctrine and the Christian faith. So don't miss this, okay? As we said last time, Job asked the question many years ago, how can a man be righteous before God? Well, Paul tells us how in this section of Romans 3. And as we said last week in the process, he lists 10 characteristics of God's righteousness. We studied the first four last week. And here they are. God's righteousness is, first of all, apart from the law. 
Uh, beginning part of verse 21. God's righteousness is revealed and affirmed in the Old Testament, the end of verse 21. God's righteousness is received through faith in Jesus Christ, beginning of verse 22. God's righteousness is available to all who will believe, the end of verse 22 and verse 23. That brings us tonight to number five. God's righteousness is acquired by justification. And I want to look at verse 24, but let's back up and read verses 21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, guys, in verse 24, Paul mentions three extremely important words in Christian theology directly, and a fourth very important word is mentioned indirectly. Those four great theological words or concepts are grace, justification, redemption, and propitiation. We just looked at grace, which then brings us to the second great theological concept, justification. The word justified isn't just a synonym for forgiveness. I mean, it includes the idea of forgiveness, but to make the word only mean forgiveness is to lose the real meaning of the word. Also, the word justified doesn't just mean to be pardoned. You see, a pardon only takes away the penalty but leaves the guilt intact, which means it only deals with the negative. But justification is where God not only takes away the penalty, but also the guilt and gives something positive in its place. What is that? The righteousness of Christ. So in that regard, it deals with both the negative and the positive. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, Justification is different from a pardon because a pardoned criminal still has a record. When the sinner is justified by faith, his past sins are remembered against him no more. And God no longer puts his sins on record or puts them to his account, end quote. Uh, also, guys, justified is not a synonym for amnesty, which comes from the word amnesia, which means to forget. It's not that God arbitrarily forgets that we have sinned. Uh, some define justified as just as if we never sinned. They imagine God saying, I'm going to pretend that it was just as if you never did it. One author said, and I quote, God's justice and righteousness would never allow him to capriciously say to people, let's just forget you ever sinned without some kind of, listen, legal basis for doing so. And that's because justification is an act of justice. It's an act of justice. A legal acquittal from guilt by God, the judge of the whole universe, and the pronouncement that the believing sinner is now righteous in his, in his sight. How? Based on what? Well, many scriptures. I'll just give you one. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's called penal substitution. Another was punished in our place. It is the foundation for the gospel that we couldn't pay for it. We were guilty, and we couldn't pay for our sins. We were doomed to spend eternity in hell. 
because we were sinners and sinners can't die for sinners, pay for sins and so on. So Jesus Christ came down, God became man, and he stepped into our place. He, he took our penalty on himself, died in our place. You know, he was bruised for our, our iniquities. He was beaten for our sins. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Penal substitution, it is the basis for the gospel. Now, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who I've quoted before in this study, and will no doubt quote again, but uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse sums it all up for us. He said, and I quote, We have seen that man is not merely a forgiven criminal still suffering for his crime, and we have seen that man is not merely a pardoned criminal forgiven of the guilt and of the penalty, but still has a record. Our text declares that the sinner is justified, that is, he is forgiven, pardoned, and declared to be essentially righteous. This is far more than being declared innocent. God does not proclaim the sinner uh, that the sinner is innocent. It would have been wonderful if fallen men had been restored to the position of Adam before the fall. Yet how precarious would have been that state for the first parents were not able to maintain that sinless condition. In other words, they would have just fallen again. Okay. Yeah, God could have said, okay, let's do a, have a start over, do over. All right? But that wouldn't have helped because they would have just fallen again at some point. But when we are justified, we are lifted much higher than Adam. We are made higher than the angels through Christ, who was made lower than the angels, Hebrews 2, verse 7, to purchase our salvation. We are made higher than the seraphs and the cherubs. We are made higher than Lucifer was before he became Satan. We are counted as one in Christ and are given the position of sons with the Father and are destined to share the government of the universe with the Creator. Righteousness now belongs to the justified one even as it belongs to God for we have been made partakers of His divine nature and, are, uh, and we are now a new creation. This does not mean that we are sinless in this life. But it does mean that we have been declared righteous by God, the judge of the entire universe. I remember listening to a pastor. Um, he, might, he might have been a theologian. I'm not sure. But he said, you know, people are upset because they're being held accountable for what Adam did. Why am I being punished for Adam's sin? Let me tell you something. Adam was the best we got. He was the best we had. He was created without a sin nature. So he was our, our biggest champion, and he blew it, okay? It's like me saying, as I watch the Olympics, and I'm watching these guys, I don't know, clean and jerk 500 pounds, big power lifters, right? I don't know if they clean and jerk that much nowadays. But, you know, you get the idea. But he comes in like third place, guy from America. And I say, well, why is he, why is he representing me? I could have done as good a job as him. I could have done better. Well, that's ridiculous. You know, but then this pastor said, look, let me say something to you. We have gained more in Christ than we ever lost in Adam. If Jesus' blood would have only put us, reset us back to innocence before we sinned, I mean, that would have been good enough. But what God did was he made us his children. He put his spirit within us. 
and made us, gave us a place in his kingdom where we're going to be sitting on thrones with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be ruling in the kingdom age with the Lord. I mean, he has given us more in Christ than we ever lost in Adam. All right, number six. God's righteousness is, this is verse 24, God's righteousness is bestowed freely. Bestowed freely. Listen, just because it's free, redemption, doesn't mean it's cheap. I always think of Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8. None of them, no human being, can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly. A lot more costly than we could ever pay the price because it would have taken a sinless lamb, the lamb of God, to die for sinners. Guys, it cost God a great deal to purchase our salvation and offer it to us, listen, as a free gift of his grace. Of course, it cost him the blood of his son. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Perfect. He was the perfect lamb. And that allows God to offer to us salvation freely. Revelation 22, verse 17 and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears the gospel in the invitation come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. It's free. Guys, I don't think most Christians realize how great a work of God went into our redemption. I mean, we talk about the vastness of the universe God created with his billions of galaxies containing trillions of stars, right? I mean, it's a truly spectacular thing to behold. And now with the latest technology and, and telescopes launched into space that can see farther, it's becoming more spectacular as we uh, see the universe closer up. But look, as spectacular as the creation is, do you realize, it didn't cost God anything to create the universe. Think about that. In fact, as large and spectacular as the universe is, only 31 verses in Genesis chapter 1 are devoted to the creation. 31 verses in the first chapter of the Bible, and the rest of the Bible is devoted to redemption. Think about that. The Bible tells us that creation, listen, was the work of God's fingers. Psalm 8 verse 3 when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, and it goes on. However, when it came to redemption, the Bible says he, God, bared his arms. In other words, he rolled up his sleeves. Because this is where the real work came in. The work of redemption, or as Paul the Apostle put it, the work of the new creation was far more involved and, from a human standpoint, far more difficult to accomplish than was the original creation of the, of the physical universe. Guys, in the creation of the physical universe, all God had to do was speak, and everything came into existence. But when it came to the redemption of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human form, had to die. 
You see, that was because God couldn't just speak our sins away. They had to be paid for. And that's the idea behind redemption. Somebody had to pay for our sins. God is a righteous God. Sin has to be punished. It has to be paid for. Otherwise, God would not be the righteous judge of all the earth or all the universe. Very important point, because a lot of folks don't understand God's righteousness, and they feel like, well, what's the big deal? Why doesn't God just say, just forget it? You blew it. Eh, you know, we'll just sweep it under the rug. Eh, no big deal. I'm God. I can do whatever I want. No, God can't. Let me stop and say this. Yes, God can do whatever he wants to do. I don't know if you've ever run into somebody that thinks they're, they, they're going to catch you as a Christian. Here's the question. Can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? No. Well, then he can't do everything. They think they got you. And I just come back and say, you're right. God can't do everything. In fact, there are things that I can do that God can't do. I can lie. I can, I can steal. I can do a lot of things that God can't do. But I tell, I tell people that God can do whatever he wants to do. And he will only do that which is consistent with his nature and his character. And God cannot, well, let, let me just quickly, years ago, this is now last millennium. So it's going back a ways. My kids were little. My son Phil was actually, he was a little guy, and I think Bobby was a baby at this time. And um, so we wanted to get the kids, and, and we just got, I think, our first VHS machine, right? That's how far back this is going. <laughs> and so I noticed that Moody was advertising uh, a, uh, a few um, stories on, on VHS tape um, of a man named Mr. Fixit. Now, this was popular back in the 50s, and they had remastered it and, and put it out again. They were, they were, you know, and the idea was Mr. Fixit owned a, a, a repair shop. You know, you bring in any bike. You bring in whatever, uh, you know, and your toaster or whatever you, you, know, you had that wasn't working. And uh, Mr. Fix-It would fix it, but he was a solid Christian. And so when people would come in, and, and I, the ones I saw were, you know, young, young people bring a bike in. Mr. Fix-It, my bike is not working. Oh, let's take a look at it. You know, and while he was ta fixing the bike, he would engage the child, you know, uh, in conversation. Well, what happened? And well, I, this guy at school, this, this guy was picking on me and he kicked my bike and blah, blah, blah. So Mr. Fixer had to pull a drawer out and he opened up this picture book with, you know, and he'd read a story that related to it from the Bible, right? One of the stories was how that, and boy, I didn't plan to get into this tonight. Um, so bear with me because I'm going to mess up some of the, the details. But you remember, oh, you're going to have to help me out. Um, Remember Naboth's vineyard? And who was the king in power at that time? Well, one of the kings was in power, right, of Israel. And Naboth's vineyard was right next to the palace. And so he wanted to buy it for a vegetable garden or a flower garden, something like that. So he goes to Naboth, and he offers him money. And Naboth said, well, king, thank you, but I can't, this is my inheritance. I can't sell my inheritance. So the king went home and he pouted. Remember how he laid in his bed, turned his face to the wall, was pouting. Was it Jezebel? So it was Ahab. Jezebel, she was a piece of work. 
she came in and said, what's, what's, what's going on? Why are you pouting and not eating? What's going on here? You're the king. What are you doing? <laughs> well, Naboth won't do this deal. Yeah, and he just <laughs> spilled his guts, you know. She said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. So she um, got a hold of some worthless characters and wrote some letters, gave it to them. and said, give it to uh, the, uh, the person where Naboth lives and say that he blasphemed God and whatever else and, and take him out and stone him. And they did. And after he was stoned, then Jezebel came in and said, look, he's gone. Uh, go ahead and take his land. Well, at this point, one of the, the uh, kids that Mr. Fixer was, was, was telling the story to said, he said to Mr. Fixer, he said, well, why didn't the king just take the land? Well, he wound up taking it by killing the guy. But, he said, but the kid said, well, why didn't the king just take the land? He's the king. And Mr. Fixer rightly said, there are some things not even a king can do. Now, Ahab was not a righteous guy, but the principle is a solid, that there are some things that not even a king can do. Uh, kings have to abide by their own laws. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute ruler, and if you can, it's a great gig if you can get it, but, you know, most kings have to abide by their own laws. It's like our president. Our president has to abide by laws, although, okay, that's a whole different sermon. But uh, theoretically, just because he's president doesn't mean he can just do whatever he wants. Forgive me, Lord. Um, when God created the world, he gave it into the hands of Adam and Eve. He said, the earth is yours to oversee. You're going to be stewards of it. Uh, everything is going to bring forth after its kind. You're not going to have to worry about planting and, and, and harvesting and all that. It, it's just going to happen naturally. But I want you to be in charge and oversee it. And when Satan appeared to Adam and Eve, well, Eve in a form of a serpent, and she uh, tempted her and uh, dangled in front of her this idea that uh, she could do whatever she wants. She doesn't have to listen to God. In fact, if she eats the forbidden fruit, she'll become like God, and he doesn't want the competition, trying to keep that divinity all to himself. But she listened to him and ate the forbidden fruit and fell and gave to Adam the fruit, and he did fall. And Satan at that point became the earth's new owner and man's new master. There's this transfer that took place because God had given them the earth to all oversee it, and they disobeyed God Almighty, and they obeyed the devil, and there was a transaction that took place that they didn't, I, I don't know if they fully understood the extent of it at the time. Now you say, well, wh why does God let Satan continue? He's God. Why does he just crush him right now? Why did, because God has to abide by his own righteous laws. Adam and Eve, of their own free will, gave the earth to the devil. He rightfully owned it. Jesus didn't dispute that when Satan took him up onto a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time, and said, all these are mine. I can give them to whoever I want. I'll give them to you if you bow down and worship me. Jesus didn't say, Satan, you big fat liar. You don't own the world. No, he understood that was a true statement. If it's going to be tempting, and that Satan would never be able to tempt Jesus, but if it was going to be tempting, it had to be legitimate, Right? And so Satan was the legitimate owner. He's the God of this world. And for Jesus to take the world back from Satan, he had to come and he had to die so that his shed blood paid man's sin and Jesus was able to take the world back. Now, he owns it. 
He hasn't taken possession of it yet. That's coming. You remember the story of the pearl of great price. Different interpretations to that story, that parable. Let me tell you what I think. Kingdom of heaven is like a man walking through a field, finds a treasure. And for the joy of that treasure, he goes out and sells all that he has and buys the field. Right? That he might gain the treasure in the field. He's a righteous guy. He could have just stolen the treasure. But he wanted to do it right. So he purchased the field. The field is the world in parables. You think God needed another rock spinning in the cosmos or called earth? Because there was a treasure in this planet. It was lost sinners whom he loved. So he purchased the world, not because he needed another world. He purchased the world to get to the treasure. You know what the treasure is? Us. We're the treasure. Oh, I don't feel like a treasure. <laughs> I don't either. But as God sees you, he values you. Why does he value me? I'm not worth anything. You're missing the point. God doesn't value what is worthwhile. It's, we don't have any intrinsic value in and of ourselves. We're fallen sinners. He chooses to put value on us. And why? That's only he knows why. But I've told you this story years ago when the kids were little. We didn't have the money to buy a video recorder. So we took pictures. We took pictures, and we would put them in a big plastic bin under the bed, right? And all these pictures of the kids growing up in special times and Christmas and birthday parties and all, the whole family gatherings, right? What are pictures? They're just images stamped on cardboard. Intrinsically, they have no value, right? There's paper. But if a fire ever broke out in my house after I got my family out safe, safely, I wouldn't go back for the jewelry. or for, I'd go back and take that box of pictures because I have attached value to those. Those things are priceless to me. And, and that's how God works. He doesn't love us because we're, we're, we're worth it. He didn't die for us because we're worthy. He has attached value to us. I don't understand but in the heart and mind of God, this is what he has chosen to do. And Jesus died to purchase this world back from the control of Satan. And he's coming back again someday, and we believe someday soon, to take possession of what he has bought and paid for and to establish a kingdom of righteousness that will never end. And he's inviting people right now, unworthy sinners, to be a part of that kingdom. And anybody who wants to receive him as their Lord and Savior, they will have their sins washed away by his blood. They will be adopted into the family of God, and someday they will reign with him on his throne. That's a pretty good, that's a better deal, deal than Adam ever got. I don't know how he got down that road. Um, I hope it was fruitful. I, I don't know. Um, number seven, God's righteousness is possible because of grace now we've already covered it we'll talk more about grace no doubt uh in the days and in the weeks to come but let me just say that someone has turned the word grace into an acrostic and it goes like this god's riches at christ's expense grace god's riches at christ's expense i think that's a pretty good summary of grace there's other nuances to it but that's pretty good i like that Number eight, God's righteousness is acquired through redemption. 
Redemption is not a word that's used in our society very much today. Uh, but in Paul's day, it was a very common term. Uh, many people today have no idea what redemption is. I mean, especially when it's talked about in the pages of the New Testament. However, the first century Greco-Roman world knew exactly what, rede what redemption was all about. It was all about slavery. You see, in the first century Greco-Roman world, slavery was very much a part of their daily lives. In fact, it's been estimated that more than half of the people you'd see on the streets of some of the great cities of the Roman Empire back then were slaves. They, these were people without rights, mere property existing only for the comfort, convenience, and pleasure of their owners. As you can imagine, the life of a slave was often hard, hopeless, and downright miserable. Now, there were some good masters who treated their slaves kindly. But for the most part, these were cruel people. When you own people and you look at them as your property and possession, you don't tend to have a high view of their humanity. I mean, these folks were bought and sold like tools or like animals and discarded just as easily by their owners. The Roman statesman Cato said, Old slaves should be thrown on a dump, and when a slave is ill, do not feed him anything. It is not worth your money. Take sick slaves, sick slaves, and throw them away because they are nothing but inefficient tools. Juvenal wrote of a slave owner whose greatest pleasure was, quoting him, listening to the sweet song of his slaves being flogged. Now, the idea of being set free from slavery wasn't foreign to them, especially if you were a slave. You dreamed of it. That was the whole idea behind redemption, a concept that they were very familiar with. You see, guys, the word redemption meant to purchase by paying a price, to purchase by paying a price. And that was a concept everyone in the first century Greco-Roman world knew very well. Historians say that there were some 60 million slaves in the first century Roman Empire, and they were constantly being redeemed. For example, in the center of every major city stood the agora, which is a word that means marketplace. This was the main place where slaves, but not just slaves. Think of a, a modern flea market, but one that sold slaves. But in these agoras, in these marketplaces, uh, you had all kinds of merchants, merchants selling their wares. You know, everything from jewelry to farm animals to uh, idols uh, and slaves, among other things, right? Thus, one of the words... For the act of redemption, which is the purchasing of a slave, is agarazzo, from agura. But there's a second word for redemption that the Greek reader of the New Testament scriptures would have readily understood, and that was the word ex agarazzo, which means the act of purchasing or redeeming a slave who would never again return to the agora. You see, oftentimes, a man would redeem or purchase a slave, use him for the cultivating and planting of his fields or for the harvesting of his crops. And when the work was through, take him back down to the marketplace, the agora, and resell him. Exagorazzo was the antithesis of this practice in that it spoke of a man's redeeming a slave who would become the permanent possession of that master for the rest of his life. But guys, there's a third Greek word for redemption, and that is the word apolytrosis. 
Apollotrosa speaks of a man going into the Agora to purchase a slave for the purpose of, listen, setting him free completely, never to be a slave again. Now, granted, it was rare but not unheard of, especially if it was a relative who had become another man's slave due to unpaid debt. In those days, if you owed someone a debt and you couldn't pay it, they would take you and make you that man's slave and let you work off the debt. And so if you had the means and one of your relatives was put into slavery to work off a debt and you had the means to redeem them, often they would do that. So it was not unheard of, okay? But let's, let me end with this. Whenever the Lord Jesus, along with the writers of the New Testament, talked about redemption, listen, they weren't talking about being set free from physical slavery, the kind of slavery sanctioned by the Roman government. They had another kind of slavery in mind. When they talked about being redeemed, it was in reference to being set free from the bondage of spiritual slavery the bondage uh, of slavery to sin and the devil. And that was the context in which Paul used it in his, in his writings, and so did Peter and the others. But we're looking at Paul, okay? This was the context in which Paul used it in his writings. Again, Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I like Colossians 1 verse 14, where Paul said, in whom, in Jesus, we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and the idea is uh, Jesus' blood was the payment of our debt. So guys, when Paul talked about our redemption through Christ in Romans 3.24 and Colossians 1.14, he used the Greek word apolytrosis, which speaks of Jesus' blood setting us totally free, completely free, never to be the slave of sin and Satan ever again. Here's the tragedy, we'll close with this. If a person refuses to receive what Jesus did on Calvary's cross, his death, which paid for all of their sins, then they're going to have to stand before Jesus someday. You don't receive his payment for your sins, or you make him your loving Savior. You're going to stand before him someday. He'll become your righteous judge. And someday then you'll be sentenced to pay for your own crimes in hell forever. This will be a great tragedy since no person needs ever to go to hell because Jesus has paid our debt in full. Let me say it one more time. John 19, verse 30. From the cross, Jesus said, It is finished. Greek, tetelestai, which could be translated paid in full. And you know the practice that that came from. And I'll say it quickly because you know it probably and we'll close. In those days, if a person was convicted of a crime or crimes against society and they were sentenced to spend, I don't know, six months, a year uh, in prison, they would put him in the dungeon and they would write on a piece of parchment all the crimes he had committed. They would nail it to his dungeon door and after he had paid his debt to society, they took that piece of paper and they wrote to Telestai on the bottom, paid in full, rolled it up, gave it to him, and that was his, um, his uh, uh, guard against double jeopardy. He could never be uh, tried and, and, and served time for those crimes. He had paid for those crimes. And Paul used that illustration in Colossians 1. 
I'm sorry, Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, where he said, Jesus Christ took the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, all the debt we owed, all the crimes against God, and he wrote on our ledger to tell us that, paid in full. And we can never again be held. And it wasn't just for the sins that we committed before and up to the present. It was all the sins we would ever commit. He paid for those sins in full by his blood. And therefore, we can never be held accountable for any sins we commit after we accept Christ. They're all under the blood. Now, anyone who would say, well, that just means we can go out and live in a sinful life, then you're teaching that grace means we can we just have unbridled freedom to do whatever we want. If you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you're only going to want to do things that please the Lord. If you call yourself a Christian, you can go out there and party and lie and cheat and fornicate and everything else God has condemned. To me, you're, you're manifesting not a redeemed heart. You're manifesting a fallen heart. But Jesus paid the price so that we would never again be held accountable for our sins. And I don't know about you. I'm sure I can speak for everybody in this room. God's grace does not make me want to sin more. It makes me want to sin less. Because he's been so good to us. Why would we ever want to do anything to grieve his heart? You know? And so we will, God willing, pick it up next time in Romans 3. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. It is amazing. Totally unwarranted. For We had in no way deserved the least of your blessings or your grace. We thank you, Lord that for by grace we have been saved through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.